The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. You probably feel you've already heard plenty about the COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow the other day. If you've been paying attention, you may also remember some of the other COP meetings. COP21 in Paris in 2015, I bet you know that one. Also memorable for some was COP15 in Copenhagen a few years before that, considered a bit of a flop. But President Biden's special envoy on climate, John Kerry, has been at this game so long, he was at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1991, which led to the COP process in the first place. So I was fascinated to get his long view on COP26 when I spoke to him on the last day of the New Economy Forum last week. I also wanted to find out what that much-trumpeted US-China statement on climate cooperation was actually going to achieve. He negotiated it, after all. We have an edited version of that conversation in a little while. I'll also be asking our Eurozone economist, Maeva Cousin, why decarbonising the economy could be a recipe for higher inflation. But first, something very different. An important and thoughtful report from Frankfurt-based economy reporter Carolyn Look on a subject we haven't touched on before here on Stephanomics, the economic impact of violence against women. I should warn you, this piece does discuss experiences of domestic violence. I don't have the energy and courage I once had. Even after a thousand therapies, it's broken. And it's horrible because that's something you have to live with. You can't change it. Tanya is vivacious, adventurous, has an infectious laugh. In her own words, she's a tough woman, one who worked many different jobs when she was younger, first as a medical assistant, then as an alternative medical practitioner, and later organizing events and concerts in her native Hamburg. She always dreamed of leaving Germany and moving abroad, and like many of us, of being cared for. She thought she found that when she met her ex-boyfriend about two decades ago. He was eight years her senior and seemed like the first man who really loved her. Now 52, Tanya realizes it wasn't all that it seemed, though. Tanya is not her real name, which we've changed for her protection. I wasn't the first woman he beat up or was violent against. There were apparently a few before me. And he'd tell people in advance that I was mentally ill and hysterical, just so that... When he beat me up, he could say, yeah, I told you she's crazy. The abuse began early in their relationship. Tanya broke up with him at one point, but gave him a second chance. 
they eventually decided to leave Germany and live in a mobile home on the Greek island of Crete, which for many would seem like a romantic adventure. But while there, he locked her up, beat her, and later abandoned her on a beach, leaving her desperate and helpless in a foreign country with few avenues for support. She felt she had no choice but to return to Germany with him, and it was only there that she managed to end the two-year nightmare when a colleague gave her a place to stay. The violence Tanya had to experience is unfortunately far from rare. One in three women experience some form of physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner or non-partner, according to the World Health Organization. While the issue is sometimes framed as a personal issue, and one that's more common in developing countries, it's actually pervasive across countries and carries deep emotional and economic costs, both for victims and for wider society. Companies have started waking up to this fact after a number of studies showed how domestic abuse incurs both direct and indirect costs for the economy, beyond the already substantial legal bills, health, and shelter costs. Victims naturally lose productivity when they suffer domestic abuse, or might miss work altogether. In 2019, Vodafone became the first company to offer 10 days of paid leave to victims, and this year, Facebook followed with 20 days of paid leave. Here's Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandberg speaking on the day the policy was announced. This is something that affects everyone, including our employees. It's a situation where you need paid time off, and not just for yourself, but for a loved one. And we're hoping, we're hoping that um, this is a problem other companies will start tackling as well. A huge part of the problem, as Tanya's case showed, is that attitudes in the workplace are often a huge deterrent to getting support in the first place. When she left her violent partner, several of her male colleagues initially took turns driving her to and from work to keep her safe. But none of them actually talked to her, she says, or seemed to care very much. Eventually, her boss began harassing her, and she had to quit her job. After my experience with domestic violence, I wanted to make decisions for myself. I didn't want to be an employee somewhere and let someone have power over me. Nowadays, Tanya is a freelance designer. It doesn't pay much, but she'd rather do that than share control with a workplace that doesn't have her best interests in mind. Employers could actually do a lot to help victims. After all, where we work is where we spend one of the largest portions of our time. That's according to Jane Pillinger, an independent gender expert who worked with the UN and its international labor organization on domestic violence policy. One of the really interesting things from the work that I've been involved in with trade unions and with companies across the world is just how relevant it is to be doing awareness raising in the workplace, giving people the tools to spot the signs, to communicate with somebody who's, who's experiencing domestic abuse, because you might not be able to solve the problem, but you can open a door to helping um, somebody take the first step to surviving domestic abuse. In Germany, where Tanya is from, flawed attitudes about partner violence run deep. A recent study by an organization called Frontline 100 surveyed hundreds of business owners, managers, and executives, and showed that one in four believed that there are reasons that can justify physical violence against a partner. 
The survey respondents, who were mostly men, most often selected reasons such as not completing one's housework or refusing to have sex with the other as justifying such violence. German women's attitudes are just as concerning. Nearly 20% of women consider a husband to be justified in hitting or beating his wife, according to a 2019 OECD report. That's more than in any other country in Europe. The bottom line of all this is that blindness towards the troubling consequences of domestic abuse is costing economies billions. The European Institute for Gender Equality estimates that the cost of gender-based violence across the European Union is 366 billion euros a year. Sylvia Sacco, a professor at the Brandenburg University of Technology, has studied the cost of domestic violence in Germany and says that companies need to do much more to stand up for victims. Here she is discussing one case she was involved in, in which a female stalking victim spent years trying unsuccessfully to get help. She already exhausted all sorts of police measures and everything was unsuccessful. She then lost her job, she became chronically ill for a long time and then, years later, turned to the employer of the stalker, i.e. the perpetrator, and asked him for a conversation. The perpetrator's boss ended up confronting his employee about his actions, and it was only then that the stalking finally stopped after years of trying to get help. Here's Jane Pillinger again. I suppose, you know, a lot of employers have said, why is it my responsibility? It's a private issue in the home. Well, it, it is a private issue in the home, but, you know, it spills over into the workplace, and that's the issue. For Bloomberg News, I'm Carolyn Look. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And now, as advertised, here's that conversation with Presidential Special Envoy on Climate Change, John Kerry, for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. One of the, I guess, relatively few positive surprises out of the Glasgow summit was the US-China Joint Glasgow Declaration on Climate. Enormous symbolic significance. Clearly, there haven't been a lot of joint US-China anything for a while. But what practical difference, when we look at the words in that document, what practical difference are they going to make to the battle to contain climate change? Stephanie, the the China uh, agreement is, in fact, I think, significant. And I'm not saying that because I negotiated it with Xi Jinping, who is a longtime associate and friend. He and I know each other quite well over 20 plus years um, and we've worked at this, uh, this issue. Uh, the agreement uh, is, is five pages that lay out our cooperative effort, not just on 
uh, methane and CO2, but also on deforestation. Uh, and the creation of a working group between our two countries, which we are now immediately going to begin to activate. And I hope that our working together will increase the sharing of data, increase the sharing of, uh, of options, and begin to engage us in a very important dialogue with the top leadership of both of our countries. Um, and, and that's our hope. But importantly, the agreement is quite specific in addressing methane with a specific date for action. And the pledge is that we will reduce methane by 30% on a global basis, which doesn't mean any individual country is doing the 30%, but in contributed global uh, aggregation, we will get a 30% reduction on a global basis. And, and China agreed um, to work with us to lay out an ambitious, these, these are the words, ambitious national action plan, which China must submit and, and begin acting on by COP27, a year from now in, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. So if we were to do the 30% reduction of uh, methane on a global basis by 2030, as Fatih Birol of the IEA has made clear to us, that is the equivalent of taking all the cars of the world, all the trucks of the world, all the ships of the world, all the planes of the world to zero emissions by 2030. So you can get a sense of the enormity of what the reduction of methane can mean. It's about a 0.2 degree reduction in the rise of the Earth's temperature. And it's the single biggest, fastest grab that we can make for dealing with this problem. The third thing that the agreement does is uh, sets a date currently for when China, uh, in the commencement of its 15th five-year plan at 2026, begins to phase down the consumption of coal and does so with an agreement with us that together we will work to make best efforts to accelerate the reduction the phase out of coal. So all of what we do in Glasgow or did in Glasgow obviously results in words reduced to paper. But that is what brought us to Glasgow. That is what resulted in the submission of 191 national determined contributions or NDCs, the reduction of emissions. It's the words translated into actions that actually resulted in our committing to additional funds, 40, uh, a, a doubling of the amount of money that goes into adaptation, a significant recognition of the challenge of loss and damages with a beginning of a dialogue that will take place over the next year to figure out how we deal with that. You mentioned the sums for adaptation and mitigation for the developing countries. That was one aspect of this agreement that uh, certainly fell short and for many who were there through all of the negotiations left a kind of bitter taste in their, in their mouths because it felt that it, it, it seemed to many that very little progress had been made in really offering developing countries a path to develop as well as be part of this climate action. 
Do you understand those who felt disappointed by what came out of it, the lack of, of actual money on the loss and damage and the failure to even meet the $100 billion target, which you've admitted was, is, is nothing in the scheme of things of what's going to be needed? Well, look, let me, let me be more... Stephanie, I'm glad you asked the question because I really want to tackle that. You know, the $100 billion was a goal. It's become a target, but it was a goal. It was pulled out of the air by Gordon Brown, I think in Copenhagen, uh, where they were trying to find agreement and, and they decided there'd be uh, 100 billion. We accepted that in Paris when we negotiated it. But as I said, it was the goal of 100 billion. When I took this job on, we were at 67 billion for the year 21, uh, 2021, uh, 2022, excuse me. And um, that's the first year the Biden administration could step up, folks. A guy named Donald Trump cut all the funding. And a guy named Donald Trump pulled out of the agreement. And so when Joe Biden became president, the first budget he has in front of him is the budget we're working on right now. And we put $11.4 into that, doubling the already doubling that Joe Biden had engaged in, even as we're trying to get our own country back on track and do the things we need to do to get the job done. We've, had, we've accepted a 50% to 52% reduction. We are legitimately on track to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And I personally wish that more energy was spent focusing on some of the countries that didn't submit NDCs or and, and big countries and focusing on the countries that are not on a 1.5 track, but indeed are gonna be, uh, you know, putting more emissions into the into the atmosphere over the course of the next number of years. So the reality is we got up to 95 to 97 billion, according to the OECD for next year. And if we can complete the budget that we have coming in, then we'll be over the 100 billion for next year. So we are making good in the first year that we have an opportunity to do something with the budget. In addition, Loss and damage has not even been accepted at a major part of the agreement, but we accepted the idea that it is important to deal with and that we do have to have a dialogue. But look, if we don't want to shut the entire United States Congress down on putting money in to climate, we can't accept the opening of the liability, which is going to tie up the courts and the structure and not get the money we need for adaptation and resilience. So we really ought to be putting more effort into adaptation and resilience where we are doubling the money. But the bigger issue, folks, is not $100 billion. That's peanuts compared to what we have to be doing here. And the fact is that we went to the top banks in the United States. I personally engaged with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Citi, uh, uh, JP Morgan, Bank of America. And those six banks have committed that over the next 10 years, they're prepared and will invest $4.16 trillion in this transition. In addition, Larry Fink at BlackRock says he's going to put at least a trillion in, and, and others will. And there's a global finance alliance, which Mark Carney has, has been working with, which has tens of trillions, allegedly, of additional money. We have to find a way to deploy that money. That money is not giveaway, it's not concessionary. It's ready to invest. So countries bear a responsibility to also step up and make sure that they have the transparency and the contracting 
and the PPAs and the uh, ability to be able to make those trillions into deployable investment, bankable money. You know as well as I do that a lot of the money that's needed is needed in developing countries and there's no commitment from those big financial institutions to, d to take the money to where it's going to be really needed. If, you're, if you were Prime Minister Modi, we had a rather probably uh, what you would consider a minimum commitment from India at the COP. But if you were Prime Minister of India, would you have said anything different? Have you been given any reason by the rest of the world to be more ambitious in your domestic target when you're also looking at a well, need to develop? Let me tell you develop? what we're doing. Uh, I understand Prime Minister Modi. I've met with him several times this year. We formed a partnership to help India be able to deploy its 450 gigawatts of renewable power. And we've agreed to bring finance and technology to the table. We will need India's governmental help to be able to make sure that the land is available, either lease or sale, that the transmission lines can move across one state to another. Uh, and obviously, this is a two-way street to some degree. But in addition to that, yeah, we have foreign assistance programs. We have the Development Finance Corporation, which will have several billions of dollars that it is already currently financing projects in less developed countries around the world. But the real fight here, folks, let's, we're gonna be real about this. We, we have been a leading nation in consistently assisting other countries to develop. But figure, please focus on this. 20 countries equal 80% of all the emissions. They're basically your G20, though not exclusively. Those, those 20 countries bear the greatest responsibility for helping to solve this crisis right now. And the fact is that no country really accepted, ours included, that this was a genuine crisis until 1988-1992, when we all went to Rio and formed the, the process by which we now meet every year for 26 years. But the truth is, a lot of countries decided to grow with coal not with nuclear, not with gas, not with other alternatives. And coal is the primary culprit today in warming the planet and in polluting the air and in creating the intensity of the storms that comes with the increased moisture that rises from the oceans. And, and we have to start where the greatest amount of emissions are if we're gonna win the battle. So if, if more than 50% of those 20 countries are now committed to a 1.5 degree track. And what we have to do is go to the countries where the greatest amount of emissions are and begin to reduce the greatest amount of emissions the fastest we can, as fast as we can. And, and that means China, Russia, India, Mexico, South Africa, Brazil, you know, a group of countries, Indonesia. And those are the countries we've been doing climate diplomacy with. South Africa has accepted a new plan, but we have to, all of us, be able to put the deals together that will, that will phase out their coal fast and provide the alternative renewable energy. The truth is that if India were to deploy the 450 gigawatts of renewable energy, then India is in compliance with 1.5 degrees. So this can happen. It'll take all of us working together.
You talked about the importance of US leadership here, which is clear. Commitment to this agenda didn't used to be a partisan issue in the US, but it sure is now. If you looked at the polls, if you look at the recent election results in Virginia and elsewhere, you would say the Democrats are overwhelming underdogs for next year's election and, at this point, for the next presidential election. Why should the rest of the world believe this leadership is going to continue beyond the next two or three years in this crucial period? For the very simple reason that the marketplace is going there, whether the government does or not. This is going to be a global revolution. And I believe that transformation is going to be so far. Look, General Motors and Ford Motor Company have already announced they're going to only produce electric cars by 2035. By 2030, they're going to have 50% of their cars are going to be produced uh, are electric. So I'm just telling you, you think they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars retooling those plants for electric and then turn around because some politician comes in and wants to deny science again? No. What we're doing in the United States has nothing to do with politics and ideology. It has everything to do with mathematics and physics. And if you understand mathematics and physics and you believe the science, this is going to happen because it's going to happen in all the rest of the world. And the United States is not stepping up to say, hey, we're the leader here. This is everybody's got to be leaders here. Everybody's got to step in together. But we are here to make up for the deficit of a guy who didn't understand science and didn't have any economic rationale and who pulled out of the Paris Agreement and hurt the world in doing that. And we don't have any time for that. So we're going to come back. We're going to do everything in our power because our citizens are as exposed as citizens everywhere else in the world. I mean, if, 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 if leaders don't grab onto this baton, they're going to get thrown out because the public understands what's happening and they're demanding action from all of us. So I believe no politician in 2024 is going to step up. And besides, it's way too premature to be making any speculations about I, I can't believe what's going on. President Biden is going to pass his next piece of legislation. And together with his infrastructure bill, that's going to put about two trillion plus dollars, much of which is going to go to climate action in the United States. And even while Donald Trump pulled out of the agreement, the vast majority, 37 governors in the United States, Republican and Democrat alike, continued to stay in the Paris Agreement. Over a thousand mayors continued to stay in the Paris Agreement. And they, you know, as I say, America stayed in that agreement and, and fully 90 percent of the new energy being brought online around the world today is online because of renewables. This is happening without government. It's happening because the marketplace has made a decision. That's where we have to go. And with disclosure and, and trading mechanisms and pricing of carbon and CBAM coming at us, believe me, folks, uh, no one politician can undo what is about to happen. Well, that's an emphatic note on which to begin our final day of deliberations. John Kerry, Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be with you. Thank you. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So I wanted to stick with the same theme to pick up on some work that Bloomberg economists have done on the economic implications of climate change with one of the authors, Eurozone economist Maeva Cousin, friend of the podcast. Maeva, um, so you're basically thinking through, you know, what the kinds of things that we hear about at COP26 in Glasgow, where countries are making commitments very close, short-term or longer-term commitments to decarbonize. You know, inherent in that commitment is the idea that carbon prices, carbon, the price of carbon in the economy is going to get higher. That we're going to stop subsidizing all these fossil fuels. Um, and what you're looking at is the are these various estimates of how that rise in the carbon price is going to feed through to the general level of prices and certainly the general um, rate of inflation. So when when you step back from that research, do you think that the kind of price hikes and mad variation in the cost of energy that we've seen recently, that's going to be much more common in the future as we have these various different rates of carbon of, of that's going to get much more common as we have these efforts to decarbonize? So it will really, I would say that it really depends on how orderly or disorderly the transition is first. If you can imagine a case where globally we, um, countries and policymakers agree on a relatively well settled price for carbon, then it's easier for producers to plan ahead. It's probably easier for inflation expectations to adjust as well. And you would have this initial uh, potential increase uh, in producer prices, but it's probably going to be much smoother. Uh, if in contrast, you have something where from one year to the next, you can have very large changes in um, carbon taxes, carbon prices, carbon regulations, and there is less time to adapt, then I think the, the impact on prices is going to be bigger. And in addition, uh, it's also a question of how prepared the energy system is to the new regulations. And we know that, for instance, uh, renewable energy tend to be maybe more volatile, volatile in their production. And as long as uh, there is this sort of backup coming from more higher uh, fuel intensive in uh, emission intensive products like coal, for instance, which would cost a lot in a world with higher carbon prices, then it would increase massively the cost of production if renewable drops for a, a temporary period. And that would increase the sort of volatility of energy inflation. And I think one thing that is important to consider as well is that not only it will affect inflation, it will increase inflation, but it's also a supply shock. So it will reduce growth, it will reduce economic activity. And so for central banks, you can have this sort of um, much more volatile inflation, higher on average, and a trade-off with supporting the economy. And different central banks will probably see this trade-off differently. Some may look through 
the, the price increases and we'll have higher inflation and more support for growth. Some may actually decide that they need to tighten policy to rein in inflation at the expense of economic activity. I guess you've seen a little a sort of dry run for some of this where people are blaming efforts to combat climate change for the spike in energy prices that we've seen. And if we get the kind of variability of inflation, the impact on growth that you've just talked about coming down the track, causing challenges for central bankers, also as a result of combating climate change, you know, that could that could make for some quite difficult politics as well as decisions for central bankers. Yes, definitely. And we've seen that even increasing um, energy taxes, for instance, we've seen in, in France, the Gilets jaunes protest, that it's actually difficult. It's a, uh, it tends to be, energy taxes tends to be regressive, so they tend to affect poor people more. And that's always a very difficult political um, political choice to make. The recent increase we've seen in energy prices is a combination of some very unusual uh, renewable poor production from renewable, which we may see the more wind, of. The wind not blowing. Exactly, <laughs> and which we UK. may see more yeah. if we rely more on re- renewable, plus potentially if the climate system becomes more unusual as well. Um, but it's also a, a direct impact from the supply neck, it's supply, supply bottleneck that we've seen for the pandemic. So it's some of it's a bit of both. But in any case, it's clear that the policy choices that will have to be made in terms of um, both at the same time driving the transition, but also making uh, the adjustments um, and supporting the parts of the economy that need supporting will be quite a difficult challenge for, for policymakers. And it's no surprise that part of the money um, from the European Union as part of their uh, NGU package is on the Just Transition Fund, for instance, uh, because that's something that they're already very aware of. Yeah, the Just Transition, so making sure that it doesn't just involve hiking the price of energy and having it affect lower-income households worse uh, worse than others. Um, that clearly is a, a very important piece of that. Meva Cousin, thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics, but do follow at Economics on Twitter for a lot more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to John Kerry, Mavo Cousin, Carolyn Look, Claudia Maedler, and Catherine Bosley. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.